just doesn't talk. And uh, you inquire a little bit more and you say, well, when was the last time you guys had a conversation? You say, well, it wasn't exactly a conversation. About six months ago, our little boy was uh, playing on the trampoline and fell off and hit his head and she screamed for my help and we rushed the little kid to the hospital and so on. Okay, and what was the time before that? Well, daughter was crying in the middle of the night. We went in, took a temperature. It was 105, 106 degrees. Again, my wife screamed out for help and uh, we dashed off to the hospital and so on. What was the time before that? Maybe five or six months again before that, another sort of a crisis. And so you say, well, I'm getting the picture that the only time that you communicate between the two of you is when there is a crisis. And the person said, well, that would be right. I think that is a pretty good picture of the average Christian. God is a present help in time of need. But if I don't have a crisis, then I don't need to bother God. I think as a marriage counselor, if you were to give a grade to that marriage, you would say that marriage is going to ultimately fail because communication is the name of the game. We have a marriage relationship uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ and yet so often it's only when there is a crisis that we communicate with him. And I believe that God is wanting us, uh, we have already been introduced by the Spirit of God tonight to a new dimension of prayer that God wants us to enter into. I have said for many, many years, if I could eliminate the word prayer from my vocabulary, I would. Not praying, but just the word prayer. Because prayer is akin to going to the dentist for most people. We announce a prayer meeting and very few people show up. It's lost its sort of pizzazz, it's lost its interest, it's lost its potential, it's just something like, oh, not a prayer meeting. You know, if you have a gospel singer, you can pack the place out and sell tickets and uh, still have a line out the door. But you announce a prayer meeting, nobody comes. We've done everything we can to sort of supersize prayer, and we've introduced another term, an intercessor. <laughs> an intercessor is a prayer warrior on steroids. At least that's the concept. The Bible says Elijah was a man of like passions as we are, and he prayed. And God closed the heavens for three and a half years. Imagine what would have happened if he'd interceded. Okay, again, it's a joke. But you know, we, we so belittled prayer and demeaned it that uh, an intercessor at least, you know, seems to have some sort of credibility. I'm not opposed to intercession, obviously, but we need to get back just to the place of prayer. My house should be called a house of prayer, not a house of intercession. Again, I'm not belittling intercession. What I'm saying is we need to restore the whole concept of prayer. The Bible, well, not the Bible, but there is an old saying that if you give somebody a fish, you will feed them for the day. If you teach them how to fish, they can take care of their needs the rest of their life. If I could spiritualize that, I could put it this way. If you pray for somebody, you can meet their needs for the moment. If you teach them how to pray, they can meet their own needs the rest of their life. Yeah. I'm not saying that we never need somebody else's support and so on. We need to confess our faults, pray to one another. I understand all of that. 
but there's also a place where we need to get a hold of God ourselves. I pastored for a number of years, at least a part of a team very similar to what we have here, plurality of leaders in New Zealand for 15 years. One of our members was a young man at that time by the name of Ray Comfort. He's quite sort of famous in some circles now. And Ray ended up being the associate pastor of one of our churches, and uh, he had a uh, principle that he followed that whenever he had an altar call, the very first question he would ask the person that came forward is, do you have a regular devotional life? And if they said no, he refused to pray for them. He said, the reason you're here is because you're not meeting God in the closet. Again, I'm not opposed to praying for people. I've prayed for hundreds, thousands over the years, I guess, but I believe there is a principle there that we need to get back again to the place of prayer. I want to begin by uh, taking you tonight to a portion of scripture that has fascinated me for many, many years, ever since I first read it. It's found over in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, the end of the uh, chapter. And it's the story of the Philistines and the children of Israel. As you know, the Philistines were the number one enemy, if you like, of the uh, children of Israel. After they drove out the Hittite and the Perizzite and all the other ites, you know, it was the uh, Philistines that they were constantly at war with. Isn't that right? And uh, on this occasion, the Philistines have uh, already come up with a very sinister but very brilliant plan. And the plan is that they have gone through the entire nation of Israel and they have eliminated every single blacksmith shop in the entire nation. The blacksmith shop was uh, the place where they made the agricultural implements because it says there in verse 20, so Israel went down to the Philistines each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, and his hole. And the charge was two-thirds of the shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, the axes, and to fix the holes. So obviously Israel was an agricultural nation. They were dependent upon their acre of land or five acres or whatever they had where they would till the ground and cultivate the ground and so on and consequently they needed these various implements, the axe and the hoe and so on. They didn't have John Deere's in those days and so on. And so the Philistines had made them totally dependent, again, upon themselves. Every time something broke, they had to traipse over to the Philistines to get it fixed, and they had to pay a sum of money. But that was not what was so sinister about that, nor was that the main reason. The main reason, we find, is in verse 20. Now, the blacksmith, no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords and spears. You see, the blacksmith not only made the agricultural weapons, but he, or instruments, but he made the weapons of war. It was the blacksmith, again, that forged the, uh, forged the spears and the swords and the armor and so on that they wore. And without the blacksmith, there was no ability to buy a shield or buy a sword or anything else. Notice now, we go down to verse 22. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who was Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. It came about on the day of battle that there wasn't a single individual in the entire nation of Israel apart from the king and his son 
that have the ability to defend themselves. Now that's hard for me to fathom. I wish we had more insight. I've often wondered, uh, you know, if I could find this somewhere else in the Bible. It isn't anywhere else in the Bible, this story. But I mean, this was a brilliant strategy to disarm the nation of Israel and then on the day of war, on the day of battle, to find that they were not able to retaliate. You say, well, that's a great story from the Old Testament, but there is a, a greater story, and that is there is a greater Philistine, his name is the devil. And the devil many years ago got together with his cohorts and they came up with a plan. If we can disarm the church of God on the day of battle, they will be rendered powerless. In other words, if we can eliminate the fighting weapons, if we can eliminate the prayer meeting, not only individually, but corporately, then the church will not be able to retaliate. Because my Bible says, and yours for that matter, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. In other words, more than adequate. We should be able to do things that the enemy can't even dream of doing. We have a greater power. And yet here it is on the day of battle when our nation is infested with every vice and every type of uh, iniquity. And we stand there basically sort of wringing our hands, unable to do anything. We are powerless. And I believe we've got to get back again to the place of prayer. Begin to use again the weapons of our warfare. Begin to ask God to give us insight and wisdom how to fight. That we, our soldiers, as Paul wrote to Timothy, that we have to fight the good fight of faith. I want to uh, give you some exhortations to prayer. I'm going to be getting, developing something. Obviously, we had a gap of a couple of weeks where we've got other speakers before we'll go into uh, the uh, second phase of this. So I'm going to sort of build a little bit. But uh, first of all, some exhortations to pray. We were always taught in Bible school that you shout where God shouts and you whisper where God whispers. That's a good way of rightly dividing the word of truth. God whispers when it comes to ladies wearing hats. You got the message. <laughs> now, if on every page of the Bible it says women should wear hats, then uh, I would be shouting about women wearing hats. I've never preached a message in my life about a woman wearing a hat because it is a whisper. But God shouts about prayer. And if he shouts about prayer, then it's important we should listen to what he is shouting about. Mark 14, verse 37, Jesus in the garden, of course, and he challenges his disciples, could you not watch with me just for one hour? Could you not watch with me? Could you not pray with me? <clears throat> Luke 18, and verse 1, men ought always to pray and not to faint. I want you to see as we look through these verses the way in which it is a repeated thing. Men ought always to pray. I think it says men there because traditionally the ladies, thank God, have carried the load. My experience has been over the years when you go to a prayer meeting that the, uh, the women outnumber the men about four to one, maybe even more than that. So I think when it says men ought to pray, it's uh, really emphasizing, listen, men ought to pray. The second thing, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. He doesn't say pray occasionally or randomly, spasmodically. He says pray without ceasing. We breathe without ceasing. We should pray without ceasing. 
You stop praying, what happens? You stop breathing, what happens? There's a funeral in a few days. If you stop praying, there'll be a funeral in a few days spiritually. Mark 11, verse 17, my house, and we heard it and sang it tonight, my house should be called a house of prayer. My house. Hebrews says, whose house we are. This house, your house, our collective corporate house should be a house of prayer. I've often wondered when prayer was taken out of the church service. I'm not an expertise when it comes to church history. I think Barry is teaching something on at least revival of church history, but I'd love to find out when it was that we extracted the prayer meeting from the morning service. We will sing to God for an hour, and we don't pray to God for an hour. If you had the privilege of coming into the presence of some great dignitary, some king, some queen, and you had the opportunity either to sing to them or to talk to them, which would you choose? I think I'd rather sit down and talk. I was in Africa a number of years ago speaking at a uh, minister's gathering there, and I said uh, this very thing. I said, why is it that when it comes to prayer, we always take the prayer service and place it at some ungodly hour of the day and night? You know, in other words, men are going to have a men's prayer meeting in the pastor's office at 5 o'clock on Wednesday morning. Well, you know nobody's going to show up at 5 o'clock on Wednesday morning, you know. Or we'll have it at 10 to 12 on a Friday night. Again, you know, why do we do that sort of thing? We don't do that with any other meeting. And so I said to them, I said, listen, if I ever passed it again, I would sandwich prayer right in the middle of the morning service. I said, we have pre-prayer uh, service, or pre-service prayer, I should say. I'm dyslexic. And uh, what we are really saying is, you can come early to pray, but you don't have to. The meeting really starts at whatever hour, 10 o'clock in the morning. But if you're super spiritual, you can show up at 9.30. And so I challenged them, and I said, listen, I would start with 20 minutes or whatever of worship and then I would say, listen, let's gather into groups of five or six, give them some specific thing to pray about, the election or whatever it is, and then have the entire body pray rather than 10% of them pray at a prayer meeting on a Friday night. My interpreter, who uh, was there, got on his phone. Everybody in Africa has a cell phone, I discovered. That was many, many years ago. I didn't even have one, but everybody there had he called his associate and he said, listen, starting next Sunday, we're going to put prayer back into the church service. He called me several times after that. I should say emailed me several times after that. He said, it's made all the difference in the world. You know. And again, I don't understand why we don't pray the way we should. In the book of Acts, they gather daily, what? For fellowship, breaking of bread, teaching, and prayer. It was a vital part, not praise, and I'm not opposed to that. Of prayer. And so my house should be called the house of prayer. Romans 12, verse 12, they were devoted to prayer. Now, when you're devoted to something, it's something you take seriously, it's something you do as often as you can. Isn't that right? If you're devoted to shopping, you know, it doesn't mean you get out there every leap year. 
you're devoted to golf or fishing or whatever it is, you're out there on every occasion that you can to get involved in that thing that you're devoted to. They were devoted to prayer. First Peter 4 and verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. We have a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Colossians 4 and verse 2, devote yourself to prayer. Keep alert in it with thanksgiving. So again, I mean, this is just a smattering of scriptures with this exhortation, pray, 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 pray. We need to get back again to the seriousness of that. Now, before you can pray effectively, we already heard a little bit of an exhortation there from Brendan, that uh, it's no use just sort of praying, we should find the will of God and so on. But even before we do that, we should come with clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, it's no use praying only to find out at the end of whatever it is, whether it's uh, you know, an hour or whether it's three days or whatever, that God's had his fingers in his ears, so to speak. There are certain things that hinder our prayer life. First of all, as I said, we need to come with clean hands and a pure heart. Now, I am one of those believers that uh, while I believe in the grace of God, I believe also in repentance. I know there's a lot of teaching now, especially from our friend in Singapore, that says you never have to repent once you're saved. He teaches that almost all the time because he said, you know, that uh, we're already forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and so on. While I believe he's got a revelation on the brazen altar, we don't have to get saved every week. And uh, the priest didn't have to be requalified every week once uh, the blood was on his uh, thumb, on his ear, on his uh, right foot and so on. He was qualified as a priest. But every time he came into the presence of God, he had to go by the labor. And we need, again, to come to the labor, washing the word of God. We need to come with clean hands and pure heart. And so the hindrances to prayer, the first one is selfishness. James 4 verse 3, it says, we ask, so they were praying, we ask, but we receive not. Why? Because we ask with wrong motives. I know I've possibly said this already, if you hear me preach at all, you'll know that one of the things that had a major impact on my life was many, many years ago when I stood there with my friend Winky Prattney having a conversation and Winky said to me, David, this is about 35 years ago, maybe 40 years ago now, but he said to me, David, one day you and I will stand before God. And I said, I'm aware of that, Winky. My father had a great message on the judgment seat of Christ. I was, uh, you know, raised on that and so on. But he said, you know, I've been thinking when we do stand before God, he will not ask us what we did. And that got my attention because, of course, my father had a totally different message that we will have to give an account for every thing that we do, every idle word and so on and so forth, but uh, Winky said to me, he said, no, he said, uh, I don't believe God will ask us what we did, he'll ask us why we did it. Now, that's terrifying. I'd rather go back to what we did. I built the biggest church in, uh, you know, California, the biggest church here, I have the greatest lesson, the greatest I ever want. Motivation. God is a discerner of the thoughts and heart, the motives, the intent. And so when we pray, what is my motivation? Do I ask with wrong motives? Am I, am I motivated? Why do I want a healing ministry? Is it to bump any hymn off the top of the list and have, you know, take over? You know, what's my motivation? What's my intention? Or is it that I have a genuine compassion to see people healed? And I don't care if I ever put a magazine out, I have my picture on the cover of anything. 
I just want to see God move in the area of healing. God looks at the intent of our heart. The second one is sin. Obviously, selfishness is sin. This is one of those teaching things where all these things are essence, so bear with me. The teachers will understand. Psalm 66 and verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. You say, well, I don't believe that. And uh, you may say, listen, didn't we all get saved on the basis of a prayer when we were sinners? And I say, yes, we did. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what David is saying here is, listen, I have a regard for sin. If I regard iniquity, in other words, there's something in my life that the Spirit of God has been trying to highlight, he's been trying to deal with, maybe it's my gossip, maybe it's some habit that I'm doing, whatever it is, and I'm refusing to deal with that thing. I have a regard for it, I treasure that thing, I like doing that thing. Then God will not hear me. In other words, God is not going to reward disobedience. He's the father, the ultimate father in that sense. The next one is uh, separation. I've used the word separation because in John 15 and verse 7 it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you will. In other words, if we are separated from God, if there is a division between us, we're not walking in the light or whatever it is, then God will not answer our prayer. But if we abide in Him, if there's that relationship with Him, then we can ask. The next one is submission, 1 John 3, verse 21. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments. In other words, we are submitted to the will, the will of God and the ways of God. We're walking in obedience to the Word of God. And therefore, whatever we ask, we receive. The next one is spouse. 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, live with your wife in an understanding manner, that your prayers be not hindered. In other words, our relationship one with another, I think we could broaden this to not only spouse, but uh, the one another category, but the, the closest relationship we have to our marriage relationship to the Lamb of God is the relationship we have to our wife and our husband. And if there is division there, then obviously there is a breakdown in communication. There's been times, hopefully not too many times, where normally after breakfast I'll go into my office and spend some time in prayer. Nancy will man the phone or whatever. But um, there's been times when I've knelt down in front of my big leather chair that I have there, and I'll remember that things are not right between us. And it's not only Nancy's fault, but I'll go and... Uh, <laughs> I'll go and say, listen, we need to pray. Let's get this thing behind us and so on. It's no use praying again unless we have that relationship right. And the last obstacle, of course, is Satan, which gets us into the whole realm of spiritual warfare, which I do intend to get into, but not tonight, because uh, we don't have time. All right, let me uh, talk to you then about three essential um, beliefs, if you like, when it comes to praying. And this came to me just uh, sort of out of the blue a number of years ago. I was uh, just sitting, meditating, and uh, this thought came to me that uh, 
If we are going to be effective in prayer, there are three things that we have to be absolutely convinced of. If you like, this is a tripod. We have a tripod back there with a camera on it. And if you were to take one of those legs off that tripod, it would not stand, it would fall, isn't that right? And if you remove any one of these particular truths, then the rest of them will crumble as well. I want to talk to you about the presence of God, the passion of God, and the power of God. The presence of God, the passion of God, and the power of God. Imagine, if you will, and this is the illustration that uh, came to me, imagine that, that you are away from home, you're on a ministry trip or a business trip, and uh, you're eating in a particular place, and the place where you're staying, the hotel is maybe two or three blocks away. The meeting goes late, and you can't get a taxi, and so you decide to walk. It's a major city, let's say Chicago, and... Uh, the street is pretty desolate, maybe it's even a back alley, you can see the, uh, the lights of the hotel, and so you make your way towards that, and as you are going down this little narrow alleyway, very dimly lit, a gentleman rounds the corner who is three times your size. Not only that, but he's high on drugs. He's also full of alcohol, and the moment he sets his eyes on you, he begins to threaten your life. And at that particular time, you think, if only my best friend were present. My best friend is even taller than this giant man. My best friend is an expert in martial arts. He's uh, physically fit. He's got the chest of a, like a barrel. He's got arms like uh, tree trunks and so on and so forth. And he could uh, easily take care of this monster, if you like. The problem is, my friend is not present. And even though my friend is powerful, and even though he is my friend and he is passionate, he is not present. So I have a problem. Again, I'm walking down the alleyway and this gentleman is confronting me, swearing, cursing, talking about what he's gonna do to my life and so on and so forth. And at that particular moment, I look across the alleyway and I have not noticed that there is a man there again, almost twice the size of this monster that's confronting me. I can look at him, he is present. Not only that, he's powerful. He's got a chest, you know, like two barrels. He's got arms again, just, uh, I mean, this guy could easily take care of my problem. He's present, he's powerful, but he has no passion. He doesn't want to get involved in my affairs. He doesn't even know who I am. I still have a problem. Again, we change the story a little bit. Here I am going down this alleyway. This man confronts me. He is swearing and cursing, saying what he's going to do to me. And at that moment, again, I look there and I notice my very, very, very best friend. We have grown up together, we are like brothers, we're like twins, we think alike. He's told me so many times how much he loves me and so on and so forth. I mean, he is passionate towards me. And he is present, which is even better. But he's also a midget. He has no power. 
And because he has no power, I still have a problem. You see, unless you are convinced that God is present, you'll not really pray. Lo, I am with you occasionally. Amplified. Oh, always oh, I will sometimes leave you and sometimes forsake you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. In other words, we've got to be absolutely convinced that God is with us. Where two or three are gathered together, what? I'm going to be there. And this has got to be sort of indelibly, you know, what uh, written in the very fleshy tables of our life. God is with me. The second thing is that God loves me. If I don't believe that God loves me, I'm not going to believe that he's interested in anything that I, any problem I have or anything else. Why should it be? You know, I've got skeletons in the closet, maybe, and so on and so forth. Maybe I've got to check it past, and the enemy's done his best to deceive me into thinking, you know, you, you don't break with God. I mean, you know, you've got to be a Jeremiah Johnson that never had a cigarette in his life, never smoked, and so on and so forth. Actually, Jeremiah and I, I even shared this the other night, he and I are competing to uh, get the, uh, the record from Guinness Book of Records, because I too never smoked and never drank and never slept with anybody outside marriage and so on. So, 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 no. but, you know, but you see, I, that's why God loves me. You know, but you don't know about my background. You know, God, uh, he sort of holds me a little bit at arm's length now. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from most sin. No, from all sin. I'm a child of God. And God is no respecter of what? Persons. No respecter of persons. I remember being in a big conference up in Branson, Missouri, many, many years ago. And um, it was a missions conference, and they had the delegates come in from different places, and they were dressed up in their, their garb, you know, the Africans and Indians and so on, each one. And then uh, somebody came in, the Israeli uh, person came in, and the whole place erupted. And I stood up and I said, listen, there's something wrong. God is no respecter of persons. He loves the African as much as he loves the Jew. And that's not putting down, you understand. But sometimes we have that mentality that God has got his favorites and I'm not in the favorite list, so therefore, I don't have confidence to pray. And then the last thing, obviously, is that uh, God is a God that has power. All power and all authority is being given to him. All power. All authority. There is nothing too hard for me. And I've got a list of scriptures for each of these, but you, if you are mature enough, I'm sure, to know that there's many, many, many verses that you could list under each of those headings. But that has to be, you know, part of who we are. Then prayer is exciting because God is not a far off. God is not somebody that has, somehow I've got to convince him, hey God, remember me. I know I'm not famous. I know, you know, no. He's a father. He doesn't have favorites. You're his child. Call unto me. I will answer you. John chapter 14, 
we have the, in fact, if I were to say, let's say it all together, I'm sure most of us could, John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me, my father's house and many mansions and so on, I go to prepare a place for you. I think that verse has got two applications. One, of course, is the most popular one, the songs written about it. I've got a mansion over the hilltop. And, you know, we've all got the concept that Jesus is up there, back with his carpenter's belt on now, trying to finish off the condos before the rapture. Yeah. Isn't that right? I've got to prepare a place for you. And while that may be true, I think there was something else in the mind of the, the Lord. A few verses later, at least a couple of chapters later in John 17, he says, Hitherto you ask nothing in my name. But in that day, one day, the day when I go and prepare a place for you, you see, when Jesus said that, only one man once a year had access into the presence of God, that was the high priest. In fact, the day of atonement, when the high priest went in to represent the nation of Israel, he had his you know, robes on there, and they had all those stones representing one, each one representing a tribe, and he went in as their mediator and so on. It was the day that Israel cherished above every other day, because this was the day in which they were represented before God by a high priest, but nobody else had access into the presence of God. But after the cross, Jesus said, listen, I'm going to do something. I'm going to prepare a place for you. A bunch of fishermen, mainly. So that where I am, you may be also. And the very first thing that happened when Jesus Christ uttered those words, it is finished, the veil of the temple was rent, where you and I have access into the presence of God. I go to prepare a place that where I am, you may be also. Or there may be a futuristic aspect to this, like I said, an eschatite eschatological uh, aspect to it, but I believe there's something far more important in the mind of God. In fact, Paul says in the book of Ephesians, he's raised us up and he's what? Seated us with him in heavenly places. We don't have to wait in that sense. I heard years ago the story of two businessmen, both of them were believers. One went into the other man's office and he had his little sign on his uh, desk and it said, keep looking up. And, uh, sorry, it said, keep looking down. And his friend said, uh, brother, I don't get your sign. It says, keep looking down. It should be, keep looking up. He said, no, brother, it's keep looking down. He said, no, brother, everybody knows it's keep looking up. They argued for a while, and the brother finally frustrated. He said, listen, it depends where you see me. You see, if he's raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places, we keep looking down. And if you're still looking up, you're not where you should be. We should be seated with him in heavenly places, far above all principalities of uh, powers. I used to do a lot of flying. I've curtailed a lot of that now. Well, God has, but, uh, you know, I got the couple of million-mile clubs there for a while and, and so on. But, you know, when you fly, you have a totally different perspective. Isn't that right? You know, Lakeland looks pretty small from 35,000 feet. But when you're in the middle of it, it's overwhelming. And I believe spiritually, God wants to give us this perspective. He's far above all principalities and powers. 
and we should be again seated with him there in heavenly places. And yet we don't avail ourselves of the fact that there is a rent veil. A.W. Tozer in one of his books talks about what he calls, I believe the phrase he uses is the tyranny of the routine. In other words, we just get used to something. And he makes a statement, imagine if the stars only came out one night a year. In other words, it was totally black. The heavens were totally black every single night of the year except for one. And seemingly something happened and all of a sudden you could see the stars. He said that everybody would look forward to that particular night, almost like an eclipse. You know, telescopes would sell out, binoculars would sell out, we'd put the kids to bed early, wake them up at 10 o'clock, take them outside and say, look, and the little kids would be mesmerized because they've never seen the stars before. But he says, because we can see them every night, they lose their fascination. And he says, that's what's happened to prayer. Because the veil is being rent, we no longer think that much about it. Whereas in the Old Testament, it was once a year. And boy, the whole nation came together in anticipation. We have access through the mediator, through our high priest, we have access. But now, again, the tyranny of the routine. And we don't avail ourselves again of the prayer that uh, we should. Luke chapter 11. If you're one of the Bible school students, you can go to sleep here for a few moments. I touched on this the other day. Luke 11 verse 1. It says, It came about while he was praying, he being, of course, Jesus. But after he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. My father used to say this is the only time in the Bible where God, or where Jesus was ever asked to be, I'm sorry, where the disciples were ever asked, uh, or ever asked to be taught something. We have no record of them saying, teach us how to preach like you do, or teach us how to walk on water like you do, or teach us how to take a little boy's lunch and feed a multitude like you do, and so on. This is the only time they ever asked to be taught something. And my father says, and I believe he's right, obviously, that they had been observing him praying and discovered this is the key to this man's life. He knows how to touch heaven. If I were to eliminate the word prayer, I would use that song from Australia that was popular years ago, Touching Heaven, Changing Earth. And we say, we're going to have a meeting tonight where we're going to touch heaven. Chances are you have a few more people show up, but if you say we're going to have a prayer meeting, well, we don't have to go, it's just a prayer meeting. No, they're going to do something interesting tonight. I mean, they, they said they're literally going to touch heaven. Yeah. Touching heaven, changing earth. In other words, Jesus was able to touch heaven, and they basically say, if I could, you know, extrapolate here, Lord, teach us how to touch heaven the way you do, because if we can touch heaven the way you do, we can do everything that you do. So Jesus begins to give them what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. It's a shorter version of Matthew. We'll get to Matthew in a minute. But Jesus added something that Matthew didn't. It's there in verse 5. He says, suppose one of you shall have a friend. She'll go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come from a journey. I have nothing to set before him. From inside he'll answer and say, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though you will not get up and give him anything, 
Because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he'll get up, get up and give him as much as he needs. And I say ask, and of course it goes on and off and so on. Here is an individual who is anticipating the arrival of his friend. Maybe they haven't seen each other for months, I don't know. Maybe he's calculated that sometime, sometime early in the morning, uh, you know, 8 or 9 o'clock, he's going to arrive or something. Instead, he arrives at midnight. He's famished, a night comes when no man can work and there's no 7-Elevens open and so on. And so uh, by the time he gets to his friend's house, he's anticipating getting a meal or getting something to eat. Hospitality, of course, played a vital role in their culture. And when he gets there, his friend says, I don't have a single thing to give you. Which means he was married and had teenagers. meditate long enough, you come to that conclusion. How embarrassing not to be able to meet the needs of your friend. But he remembers, listen, I've got another friend. And what I know about my other friend is he is loaded. I mean, he has just stacks of food, stacks of provision. And even though it's midnight, he goes pounding on the door and his friend gives him, the Bible says, as much as he needs. Not just a little dabble do you sort of thing, not just here, yeah, take a few biscuits and a, you know, no. How much do you want? I said to the Bible school students yesterday, I think it was, that uh, throughout the course of your ministry and my ministry, people will come to us at a midnight hour. It may be not be midnight on their Rolex or their Timex, but midnight in the sense that their marriage is falling apart or something else, or physically, or emotionally or some other problem, but it's a midnight to them. And the sooner you can say to them, I have nothing to set before you, the better. And then you say, listen, I've got a friend. And my friend has what you need. I am prepared to go to my friend to get from my friend what I don't have, but what you need. That, Jesus said, is what prayer is all about. It's an acknowledgement of need. It's an acknowledgement of poverty. It's an acknowledgement of dependency. That I cannot do a single thing in and of myself. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability. But God does. And all we have to do is knock. Thank God. Matthew chapter 6 now. We have the... Oh my goodness. Time is already gone. I know some of you have got children and you've got uh, school and so on. Um, maybe I will leave it there. I expect it to get a lot further, but it's, uh, I'm not able uh, to. Um, let me just uh, give you a couple of verses here, something else, just to fill in for a moment. Mark chapter 6 and verse 22. I was reading this about six months ago. It's the story of. Um, Uh, King Herod. We'll pick it up, uh, Mark 6 and verse 18. But John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So there was a little bit of a relationship that built up uh, between this. Uh, 
godless king and, uh, and John, they used to go down, I guess he'd sit there at the cell and, uh, and chat with John, I don't know. Verse 21, but a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday he gave a banquet to his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So you can imagine this banquet, here he is, he's a king, he's got all the uh, military men, he's got the commanders, he's got the leading men of Galilee, that's quite some gathering. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to her, ask whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, even up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said to him, John the Baptist. And immediately she came in haste before the king and asked him, saying, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a planet. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oath and because of his dinner guests, he, he was unwilling to refuse her. Here is a earthly king that gave his word. And when he was challenged on the basis of that word, I've got to do it. I'm not going to renege, I'm not going to back down, I'm not going to say, well, I didn't really mean that. And even though it cost him, he said, I'll do it, and immediately he responded. And as I read that, just in my devotions, uh, sometime this past year, I thought, how much more of the word of the king? He's given us promises, exceeding great and precious promises and I believe he'll keep his word. Have I not spoken and will I not bring it to pass? My time is gone. We'll pick this up uh, next time we meet, which is a couple of weeks. But let me encourage you. I believe God was here in the early part of this uh, meeting, obviously, as Bethany challenged us and the Spirit of God picked that up. Let's not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Let's determine to pray more. Pray for this work here. Pray for Lakeland. Pray for our nation. Our nation is just coming apart at the seams. We don't have to dwell on that in that sense. But listen, there's not going to be a nation pretty soon. Unless something happens. Unless there is a God-sent, God-given revival. And it's only going to happen when we ask rain in the time of the latter rain, when we get a hold of God and say, God, I will not let you go until you bless me. Lord, you made promises, ask of me, and I'll give you the heathen to your inheritance. The uttermost part of the earth is your possession, ask of me. We've got to lay hold of God, bring those promises before him. If an earthly king, an ungodly king like Herod said, I swore and I am not going to change my mind, how much more? God Almighty. Father, we just thank you again for this time. Thank you, Lord, for the challenge tonight to pray. And we say, Lord, again, to the disciples, teach us how to pray. God, wake us up in the middle of the night, Lord, put a burden upon us. Father, we want to pray with a burden. Father, we want to intercede again that you begin to direct us, Lord. We want to stand in the gap. Father, your word said there was nobody that you could find that would stand in the gap. God, we say, here am I, send me. Here am I, Lord, pray through me. Father, take this word tonight, inspire us, I pray. 
that God, we would be a generation that would not let you go until you bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.